In a world full of smart devices, shouldn't your printer be smart too? It is with HP+. These printers know when they're running low, so you always get the ink you need delivered right when you need it. Plus, you save up to 50% on ink, so you can print whatever you want, as much as you want, anytime you want. Huh, that is pretty smart. Get six months free of instant ink when you choose HP+. Conditions apply. Visit hp.com smart for details. In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are, even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh, that is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Deborah Kletter is the biggest name in a very small profession. Restaurant recommender. Not reviewer, recommender. Here's how she puts it. It's not about, look, what's hot and happening. It's about what's happening for you. Just grabbing a bite on a Thursday night, a birthday. I'm here to supply you with an adventure or comfort. Kletter can tell you the best mofongo in the Bronx and which Michelin two-stars accommodate celiacs. I've known her for years, going back to her days as a lighting designer on some of the best and most challenging stages in New York. She's risen just as high in her new field. Restaurants are eager for her clientele, so she keeps a low profile. We did not post a headshot for this week's episode, and her name isn't even on her website, EatQuest NYC. That anonymity will be familiar to anyone who knows about restaurant critics. But unlike with critics, not just Kletter's face, but her voice, even her taste, are absent from her work, too. You know, I check out a, a swath of restaurants for other people's tastes, not my own. Because my taste, honestly, would be, you know, I like places where waitresses have been working there for 35 years. Right. I'm not going to make everybody uh, else do Thelma that. Ritter. Thelma Ritter, yeah. Thelma Ritter going to come walking in there. <laughs> when you say you do this and you're tilting toward your clientele, mm-hmm. what do they typically want? Uh, the most popular request, and I know you'll identify with this, is quiet. Just quiet. It's like pan quotidien. Mm-hmm. Why do I love pan quotidien? You want to know why? There might be a little, uh, little jazz Coltrane little. on the background. I'm having my eggs and my croissant with Coltrane, very low. You know, and there's another place I like. I like the food. But you know they're playing that particular music and they're playing it that loud because they want to get you out of there as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. Well, music sets the pace for a meal. And it just, you know, you look at somebody like Alex Stupak, who has Empion in um, Midtown. And he also has Empion Al Pastor, which is tacos in the East Village. At Pastor, he plays the music, he said, as loud as humanly possible. Why? <laughs> because there, it's dealing with people who are younger, and it's people who are also, um, you know, want to have a good time, want to, you know, get off the sort of the buzz and the high of, like, being there with this great music and eating tacos and all the that. They, they want the music. They expect it. So that's like a rock concert, but he said that the Empion in Midtown is like the studio album. He put in these sound panels so that people can—it's convivial and fun and, and all of that, but you can also hear yourself think. 
You have to know your audience. It doesn't you, bother you in some restaurants you go to where the music is blaring? Of course it does. Oh, it drives yeah. me insane. A friend of I want to cry. Well, a friend of mine was, was eating in Brooklyn to a place that I sent her, and she said the music was really loud. So I said, is it possible that you could just turn it down a little bit? And the person said, the waitress said, that's how it's done in Brooklyn. Oh, really? Right. And, you know, and what That's how it's done in Brooklyn. <laughs> really. We don't have a lot on our mind. <laughs> so, really, what's it getting in the way of? We want to have a good time. We want to have a good time. That's what I really meant. So, anyway, but I think that people want to go somewhere where they can actually have a conversation. And that comes up so often. And it's only really true in America because EQuest, I, it's global, even though it's called EQuest NYC. Um, and I've, I got people. I got people all over the planet. So, you're, so you're, you're, you're the EQuest NYC mm-hmm. is booking people around the world. Yeah, I do Italy a lot. I do. I have my Bible you gave me. Yeah, the you do. Right? It's true. I can update it now. You gave me 50 <laughs> restaurants. I know. I go a little overboard because I get really excited and I think, oh, no, wait, you have to eat here and you have to try this. But basically, I get so many people who say, we wanted to go out to dinner. We spent an hour looking at the internet. We got overwhelmed by the amount of choices. So we went to the same place we always go to. And we want to go somewhere else. So where can we go? So sometimes people come to me for a list of 10 new places, new to them. They want your recommendation, meaning they don't come to you and say, I want to go to Per Se or whatever, and you t- or there are some right there who are very self-determining. There are some who are self-determining, but I'm really not that person. I'm, oh, I mean, really? I'm, I'm happy to do that. I can, but what they I— They pay you. If they pay me, I'm, you know, I'll do whatever you want me to do. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, no, but, it's, but what's fun for me about it is that it's kind of like a dating service for people and their food. Wow. I ask certain questions. I ask Such guys, as? Uh, tell me three places you hate and three places you love. So this is a questionnaire they fill out. Everything is online. Um, everything is by email. It's not. I don't have a formal questionnaire, although I probably you know, should you email. do that. So you're not on the phone with anybody? Not really. They don't no. get the full Debbie Clarner sex phone sex they voice. They don't get the phone sex voice. You can close a lot of deals with that voice, but I'll tell you. <laughs> I should tell them to call. It's really self-robbery <laughs> that you're not doing it over the phone. <laughs> But, but so you do it by email? I usually do it by email, and people are welcome to call me. It's just that people seem to, you know, they're busy. But you and, don't pick up. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> so that wouldn't work, really, when no, you think about it. Kind of wouldn't. And you have a standard set of questions. I have just a couple basic ones, and then the questions are determined by who they are. If they're, you know, I did, somebody came from London last winter um, over the holidays, and they had children ranging in age from 18 to 6. And they wanted to go places right. with them. That was not right, easy. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> they wanted foie gras and macaroni and cheese. Ex- exactly. Crazy. So I had to sort of come up with a whole range of things. Plus, you know, I branched out a little. They wanted some activities and all of that. So I got very involved with the Knicks organization because they wanted to go to a basketball game. And, you know, I found them the right seats and all that kind of stuff. Well, so they had I, you doing some other things as well. They did. And it was yeah. kind of – it was fun, actually. But but basically, I stick to food. But it was interesting to, to find things that I thought would appeal to everyone. And I love the challenge. I love the challenge of somebody sort of saying, like, here's all the things I won't eat. Here's what I don't like. Um, now find me something that I want. Right. And I feel like, okay, they, I will. they want you to read their mind. They do. I want you to tell me what I don't even know about myself. Can I tell a lighting story or is that out of that? You can do whatever you want. Oh, well, years ago I had a client when I was doing interior lighting, and he, and he had a couch in the middle of a big room in a loft and no, no tables near it, nothing else. And he said, I want to read on the couch, but I don't want any wall sconces, I don't want any ceiling light, and I don't want any lamps. You know, and I thought, like, okay, a miner's hat could work yeah, out well exactly. for you. Yeah. But Igor with a torch. <laughs> you you summon, you yeah. snap, and he Bong. comes. <laughs> yeah. I could record it for him. <laughs> you could move your eyes over the page in the dark, <laughs> and I'm reading it for you. 
Now, I want to go back and mention to people so they don't like, lose sure. track here. You and I met in 1989 when I was we, when we were doing Prelude to a Kiss. Mm-hmm. We did that in 89. Then we went in 91 and did the film. Mm-hmm. And you were doing lighting design in the theater off-Broadway. Right. And you were very close with Norman, the late mm-hmm. Norman Renee, who directed the play. Mm-hmm. And you were doing that kind of work. And then you went into residential lighting design. Mm, like correct? garden lighting mostly. Because garden lighting is, is like getting to light a set without having to worry about the actors' faces. So you have nobody's saying, like, make it brighter. They're not laughing. Right. Um, you know, and you get to do all this sort of evocative, mysterious... How long did you design stuff. in the theater? What, over what period um, of time? Gosh, uh, years. I mean, you know, like 16 years or something. And when you stopped, like why that. did you stop? I stopped um, partly because all the directors I knew were either going to TV, film, or dying. Yeah, Norman passed away from... Yeah. Yeah. And I remember. So the, for you, just the landscape so I, had changed. The landscape had changed, and I miss it. I miss the collaborative experience of it, but my other passion was always food. And I was always the person that people asked, you know, like, where can we go? What can we do? And, you know, in the early days before the Internet, Norman and I would walk. We had no money, and we would walk all over the city all the time just for fun. And you'd walk into neighborhoods that were not gentrified, and you'd find this, like, fantastic little place that no one knew about because there wasn't an Internet. And, you know, then we'd drag people down there, and, you know, I would drag people down there. And find places. And it just is something that always made me really happy to do. You know, finding a restaurant, reading a menu is, is sort of a, a calm experience for me. It's, it's, it's pleasure. Back then, wandering the streets with Norman and you had no money, <laughs> dining is expensive. Yes. And so how do you manage to go and sample? How do you know all these places? Do you just have a world? Are you always the honored guest at the table because you're such an expert and you have a lot of friends? Seriously, I mean, because I know people like this. That is partly true. If I pick the place and I tell them what we're going to do and what we're going to have and stuff, I'm at the table. Wow. Totally true. And Norman and I, we used to go to a coffee shop around the corner from the theater company that we ran. And um, and the guy, the waiter there knew us and he treated us like it was 21. And, and I was a little late one day and Norman was waiting for me and the waiter came over to him and said, um, are you waiting for her? You can always sort of make an occasion, I think, out of anywhere you go. And for me, I can supply you with luxury. I can also supply you with an affordable alternative because it, there's so many great places to eat in New York that are not expensive. And so it, eat, eat Quest NYC is not about, you know, oh, you have to have a lot of money and you have to go here. It's really about, you know, finding like a great dumpling in uh, you know, in Queens or finding, you know, something low, you know. A great eggplant parmesan hero. Exactly. Uh, what's changed in New York in terms of dining? Oh, that's interesting. Trends, things you see, attitudes, cost. Well, I mean, there's always trends. Like right now, I think that vegan has become so popular. So now there are vegan restaurants popping up everywhere. And and then there's also sort of the whole, let's have a lot of meat and cheese. So there are, you know, burgers that the Emmy burger, which is from the pizza place, but they, their burger is legendary. It's, you know, like two patties, cheese, sauce, pickles, the works on a pretzel bun. and um, and And so... Partly because times being what they are in the world, everybody really wants comfort. They do. You find that's true? Yes. In your work? In in my work. It may not make them feel good right after, but it makes them feel good while they're doing it. And you can sort of like get a little bit of solace from today's news. And high-end Korean has taken off. Mm -hmm. 
And um, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting a really good pizza place. There are so many you know, people coming from Naples to have an opening here as well as in Naples. High-end pizza. High-end pizza, but there's also slices, not 99-cent slices, but $3.50 slices are making a comeback. So there are some really fantastic places where you know you can go get a slice, and there's a cocktail bar there too, like Scar's Pizza on Orchard Street. I saw the thing that you posted. Um, it's like where you would go after school to have a slice with your friends. So there's a a lot of that going on, too. And there are a lot of people doing, you know, Polly G, who's a, who has a really great pizza restaurant in Greenpoint. Polly G? Polly G, but G-E-E. Um, he, um, he just opened a slice place that's been long awaited and much heralded. In the slice world. In the slice world. It's true, man. There's a magazine called Slice World. Don't don't laugh. There okay. is there is a, the, the website Slice. Adam who ran it, and then there's Scott who does these pizza tours. There, you know, there's it's a singular focus, but man, they know what they're doing. Yeah. There's nothing like a good slice. <laughs> As I say to my friend, it's a hot meal. <laughs> it's it's a hot so why meal. are you eating pizza? But it's a hot meal, and it's filling, and it's good. Vegetables, <laughs> dairy, it's got protein, bread, protein, bread, all the food groups. That's right, you know? all the old fashioned food groups. Oh, but right, yes. Right. <laughs> No, no, what, what was—no, you, what were we going to say? Go ahead. No, you go ahead. No, no, you go. Well, I was going to just say that I think trends, you know, they go also with the way the planet goes. I mean, now everything is becoming about sustainability. And so there's a, um, a sushi restaurant. It's the only sushi restaurant in New York that does sustainable sushi. Um, and I'm forgetting what street it's on. But they do an omakase, so you sit at the counter and, you you know, they'll still present to you what, you know, the chef feels is good that day and what, what you know, what he's going to serve the you. Sushi the sushi Nazi. No, just a sushi master. <laughs> <laughs> and there are things now like, you know, there's crowd cow. You can, um, <laughs> there's literally crowd cow funding. What does that mean? One of the people started was a guy who started Urban Daddy, which is a restaurant site people often go to. And um, it's so that he realized that people were getting meat from farms, but not everybody can like buy a whole cow and store it and all of that. So you can participate with like 50 people and buy the section of cow you want from a farmer. Then you know where the meat's from. You know what you're getting. You're supporting small farms. It's like you know. a time that you eat. <laughs> That's right, right. which is so much nicer because you don't feel forced to go back there again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And food waste. Someone like Dan Barber, who has Blue Hill and Stone Barns in, in um, Tarrytown. Yeah. A couple of years ago, he did what he was calling garbage dinners and taking the parts of vegetables and meat that everyone chucks because it's like, that's not the pretty part. And, um, you know, so we don't need the stems of the broccoli or we don't need the, you know. And he was getting them where? Oh, well, I mean, if you're a chef and or a sous chef and you're chopping up the broccoli and you just take the florets and that's the part that you're going to serve. remains, you donate to the cause. Um, yes, exactly. And so now these dinners, though, all these chefs came and they created dinners only out of the parts that weren't pretty, rescued fruit. And it was fantastic. You know, the idea now, I think, for now and forever is zero waste. And uh, we can't afford it as, as a planet We're anymore. Trying. Beef production is one of the two, three culprits that's clobbering exactly. the rainforest. And they're cutting everything down to, to graze beef cattle. But um, describe your childhood and food in your childhood, your family, your home. What was it like? Um, we always had cousins and other people. Everyone would come to our house. So hmm. we, we had the house where people What'd your dad do? would crash. Uh, he was a businessman. And um, coming from a culturally Jewish household, not a religious Jewish household— it was really about food. It's Italians, and I think Jews are very food-focused. And so everyone cooked. And you and your family, it was just you and your brother? 
And my sister. And your sister, who okay. left when I was still young. She got out of there. She, she ran, but the only thing she could make when she left were Swedish meatballs. Um, I remember my brother went away to college, and he came back, and he was like, I have to make my bechamel sauce for you. And, um, you know, and he was so excited about it. And my mother always... If, if you told my mother you liked something, she wouldn't make it again. But if you told her, you know, you didn't, she'd sort of experiment further. I don't, I don't, don't really know why. But, and, you know, I was really indulged. My mother would make me something else if I didn't like what she was making. And that's probably why I was picky, too, because I got what I wanted. Um, but she would make things like banana meatloaf. Um, <laughs> seriously. No. It was like, no, please, please don't do that again. But she also made something that we all called slop. The remains. It, it was the remains, essentially. And she put it all together, and we all loved it. And we'd invite friends over and say, we're having slop tonight if you want to come for dinner. <laughs> but with bechamel sauce. <laughs> but with a bechamel. That just, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And when you get out of the house, when you leave home, mm-hmm. where would you go to school? In uh, Madison, Wisconsin. Because you wanted to be a radical. I wanted to be a radical. Right. And, um, and also because uh, there was a lighting professor who taught there who has since departed the planet. But he was really well known. He lit all over the world. But he did things like the ballet and the opera and at the Met. And You knew then that's what you wanted to do? Oh, yeah. Because I always sort of related to light. Even as a child, I understood light and shadow. So he was teaching there and I wanted to study with him. And so you're at Wisconsin for four years. You go mm-hmm. four years and mm-hmm. graduate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you graduate. Sure, see? Sure. That's what it says in that paper, see? It's my resume, see? My parents are dead. I can tell yeah. the truth. What do you want? Am I, am I, what do you want am I, Elizabeth Warren? I ain't running for president. You're on your own, and mm-hmm. I know that things change for me significantly in terms of food. But I think of these milestones, I think of these benchmarks in terms of my relationship to food mm-hmm. and how that changes over the years and some very significant things. Mm-hmm. And the first turn of the dial is leaving my home and going to school, where all of a sudden, you know, I, uh, what I eat is up to me. What I'm going to eat, is, uh, I decide. Right. Because when I was back home as a child, my mother would cook dinner. She had six kids. My family had no money. Right. My mother would make roasted chickens and vegetables and a salad. Everybody ate well. There's a lot of other things we didn't have, but everybody had clothes and food my, at my father's insistence. And I go to college, and what I'm going to eat is up to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a place years ago in Washington in, in Georgetown on the canal called The Foundry. Mm-hmm. It's interesting how the first thing I did was get a job as a waiter where I could eat because you get a shift meal. Mm -hmm. But I think unconsciously I put myself at these events and things and these jobs. I did student activities and things where there was food being served. And I could eat things that I couldn't afford to pay for because I was on a meal plan at GW. No, that was fantastic, yeah. Uh, But for you, how did you eat when you were in college? I do remember the first night that I was there, walking through the town at night, thinking, I-, I can go anywhere. I can do anything. We can. I can go get something to eat. I mean, something cheap, and obviously, and all that. But everyone was in the same boat, so you were together, um, and it was really exciting. But being in Wisconsin, it was a lot of cheese, and that wasn't good, right. you know. In the end, of course, all that dairy was time well spent if Deborah Kletter gets a client seeking the best cheese in Wisconsin. A good way for you to spend time is in the Here's the Thing archive. If all the food talk is driving you to the fridge, Dr. Robert Lustig will put a damper on that. That's called addiction. We know how that works for all of these other drugs of abuse. Turns out, sugar does the same thing. Same thing. It's the same as cocaine. The difference is... That for cocaine, you got to go find it, whereas for sugar, we have what we call system saturation. It's everywhere. You can't escape it. The charming, if alarming, Dr. Robert Lustig 
can be found anytime with the rest of our past interviews at heresthething.org. Coming up, New York's foremost restaurant recommender, Deborah Kletter of EatQuest NYC, makes her case against Yelp and TripAdvisor. Hi, I'm Alec Baldwin. Don't you think it's cool to care? Carrie Yuma knows fast fashion's not sustainable and decided to spin that conscious mindset to create high-quality, low-impact sneakers. Their best-selling Akka style is the perfect, durable sneaker for dressing up or down, pairing a fresh look with broken-in level comfort. Akka is made with organic cotton canvas and ethically sourced rubber, and every pair comes with Karayuma's signature cork and Mamona oil insoles. Akka's already found its way into my summer shoe rotation. Find your pair and choose from a range of bold and beautiful colors. Right now, there's 15% off at C-A-R-I-U-M-A dot com slash Alec. With how much we rely on our devices, it's easy to forget about the hardware we're born with. Take ears. Like fingerprints, your ears are totally unique. Too bad your earbuds aren't. Unless you've got Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Custom Fit Earbuds. Ultimate Ears Fits offer premium sound and all-day comfort. Their groundbreaking lifeform technology guarantees a perfect fit in only 60 seconds. Just put in the earbuds, connect to the app, and watch as the purple LEDs form the earbuds to your unique shape. With 8 hours of continuous playback on a single charge and up to 20 hours with the charging case, Ultimate Ears Fits are the perfect choice for listening to your favorite music and podcast all day long without pain or discomfort. For a limited time, get 15% off above the current offer of your pair of Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Earbuds at ue.com slash fits. Just use promo code FITS at checkout. That's 15% off the current offer with promo code FITS at ue.com slash Bits. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Now, more with Deborah Kletter of EatQuest NYC. She caters to her clients' whims and cravings, but has a clear sense of what any restaurant needs to be great. What differentiates good and bad is conviviality. If a restaurant wants you to be there, if they're happy to make you the food and they want you to have a good time, it's sublime. It's just this wonderful experience. And you know that they're really happy for you to be eating their food. So you're really happy to be dining there. I've developed a pretty keen sense of when I'm around the person Mm -hmm. who I know they derive great pleasure from preparing food and serving food. Mm -hmm. They love to see people eat their food. And there's a kind of a glow they have. There's a kind of an incandescence they have. Totally. And so the the thing for me now is that because I'm trying so much now to manage food in my life. And I'm wondering, do, do, do you factor that into your recommendations with people? Do they ever say to you, I need healthy food? I got to be very careful. You know, it's interesting. That hasn't come up as much as one would think. Uh But I think the movement now is like the whole paleo thing. And so there are people eating like dashis and broths and consumes that that your fish is poached in and all that. But um, 
I think that there's comfort and there's health, and and those two, you know, it's diametrically opposed, and there are people who lean one way and lean the other. So most of the people that are engaging your service, they don't they don't bother with that. They're there to go blow it out. Or just enjoy it. I mean, because right. it really doesn't have to be about something special. It, it just has to be about something good or comfortable for their economic bracket or, you know, the kind of atmosphere they want. I mean, it start, you know, I started doing this years ago because I would plan people's evenings for them. I just got into, like, I knew somebody, this intern working at a some in, in an office that a friend of mine was running, and he wanted to propose to his girlfriend. So another friend and I just, we, co- we, we, we coordinated the whole evening. We said where you're going to go meet for drinks, where you're going to actually have dinner, where you're going to propose to her, what table you're going to sit at, how that's all going to go down. And we did the whole evening for him, and then we started doing that for other people. She ultimately moved to Italy with her family, um, so I, you know, kind of stopped that and just kept doing what I was doing. But I, it was always in the back of my mind, and when, you know, the recession happened and people weren't doing so much garden lighting and um, I wasn't really doing theater, I thought, okay, food. Um, this is, you know, everyone always asks me where to go, and, and I always like knowing where to go, and I'm always intrigued by something, and, you know, I'm, I just sort of, I'm like a steward of, um, you know, of information. I just, you know, it, it's out there, and other people can find it too. It's just that I'm obsessed with it. Do you cook? Um, yeah, I do. You do? I do. I used to go really sort of high-end fancy, you know. And would you as, dazzle your friends with? Well, my signature dish is my shrimp risotto, but that's not really dazzling. What kind of shrimp do you use? Wild Argentinian shrimp. But it's it's more about how you cook it, and I will not reveal the secret. Okay. <laughs> um, I don't even tell other people that there, there's a few little key things in it that make it what it is. And I honestly think it's the best shrimp risotto I've ever had. Wow. I like rock shrimps. Yeah, yeah. I went to a place once on vacation down there in North Carolina, and I thought, oh, my God. I mean, this was shrimp that caught right there, fresh, and it was just, it made it tasted like something. Yes, when when you can really taste the food, that makes such a difference. It's like carrots from the farmer's market actually taste like carrots, not a bag of what's called baby carrots, but are just, you know, cut up bigger carrots in a supermarket, don't taste like carrots. They might be filling, and, you know, you can chew them, and you can slice them and put them in things, but when you taste a carrot, and you really get the carrot taste, it's remarkable. And, you know, and I think that's part of people want to know where their food's coming from now. They want to know what they're eating. So, you know, and that's why I think like the crowd. High end people you mean. But you can find that at less expensive places as well as more expensive places. It's all out there. When you go to a restaurant, what's the first thing you look for? It's the whole mise-en-scene. Are people enjoying it? I mean, do you, do you feel that sort of buzz and you smell it and it smells really good? And it, it's almost like a sixth sense that you walk in somewhere and you feel like this is where I'm supposed to be. I get it. I think this is going to be good. When you when people are enjoying their food, you, there's just that buzz. There's there's you're, you're, you know that you've come into a place where it's not about pretension. It's not about um, you know the masquerade of oh, this place is supposed to be good, so I'm supposed to like it. It's really like people are enjoying their food here. The waiters seem to be enjoying giving it to you. The cooks are happy making it for you. You're happy to be there eating it, and that really is what it is. It really doesn't you know. There's not. It's not. I I personally love a neighborhood feel. I love, you know, old world. I love a dive. But when I'm looking for clients and, um, you know, and when I'm going out to Italy and checking all these places out, I'm looking for things that might appeal to all kinds of people. I'm not just looking right. for myself. That, that's, that's your task. You know, that, that's my task. So it's others. not just about me. It's about what that is. So people ask me favorites and I don't, I generally don't reveal them because it's not about me. But you're going to reveal them to me in your next email. <laughs> Um, describe for me, give me a high end and a low end of just 
a meal you remember, a place you remember, you went there and this was all right, and all perfect. Um, can it be out of the country? It can be anywhere you desire. Okay. One of my most favorite places in the whole world is Palazzaccio's, which is in Umbria, and it's outside of Spoleto, and it's a family-run restaurant, and, you know, my heart just sings whenever I think about it and, the you know, the idea of getting back there. And one of the most amazing things that they make is this artichoke ravioli, and it's an all, you know, it, it takes them half a day to make it. And, you know, one of the things I think people want to go out to eat for is for something that they can't make at home or they right. won't make at home because yeah. it's just too Someone's time made an effort. Yeah. Someone's made an effort. And so when they make the artichoke ravioli, not only do they have to make the fresh pasta and make the actual ravioli and all of that, but they cook the artichoke. They take each leaf off. They scrape all the, you know, little bits of what, you know, the artichoke meat off of each leaf. Make a paste out of it. Like, make a paste out of it. Exactly. And the heart of the artichoke is what goes into each ravioli, but the paste goes into the sauce. And, um... And so when you eat, it's just heaven. It's heaven. In your, there's just, there's nothing else like it that just, it melts in your mouth. It's just extraordinary. And What's a, it called again? It's called Palazzaccio's, and it's on the Via Flaminia outside of Spoleto. <laughs> <laughs> and family run. Let's go there this <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> Please. Call my travel agent. Do you have a helicopter? <laughs> yes. Well, we'll need more than that. <laughs> um, and then there are definitely meals in New York, and a place like um, for Chinese food, the Little Pepper, um, which is well-known now, I happened to find it the first night they opened in a little basement in Flushing it, because I was looking for a different restaurant that had moved. And so I was with some friends. We thought, okay, this kind of smells good, and this is funky. Let's check it out. And it was sublime. And then I started, like, you know, getting friends to go there all the time, and I would go there always. And now they've moved, and they they have a place on um, in College Point, and they bought the building. So it's a l- slightly more upscale. Um, but nothing in there is bad. And right. I feel at home when I go there. I feel at home with the food. I know the dishes. I have my favorites. I order way too much. And um, and I think of you for this because um, because one of my favorite things about dining with you is that, you know, we can go to a restaurant and you'll say, you know, I'll have the chicken, you have the steak, or, you know, and I'll say I'll have the steak or something like that. But then if you're, if my eye wanders over anywhere on the menu, you say, what are you looking at? Let's get it. <laughs> yeah, I learned that from Michael Bloom, my former agent. I remember that. Bloom would say, I'd say, I can't make up my mind, the salmon or the chicken. He goes, get both. <laughs> I can't make up my mind, the sole or the pasta. Get both. What do we care? He'd say, what do you care? It's great because you and I would end up with a table filled with like several entrees, appetizer, sides. Um, you know, let's get the pizza. Let's also have the pasta. Let's also have this. And, um, you know, and that's what I, so that's kind of how I think sometimes. Like, I don't understand when people limit me and they say things like, I think we've ordered enough. Yeah. Um, and I'd be yeah. like, I don't think we have. Yeah. No. No. You don't get it. I'm the one that determines when we've had enough. I'll yeah. dictate yeah. this. <laughs> Do you remember when we had dinner at an unnamed restaurant that's very popular? Um, you had a group of like 10 people and we were all at the restaurant and the, the waiter came over and he was telling us about the salmon and he said the salmon was wrapped in cashmere, you know, every night of its life and it yes. was, um, they read it goodnight moon yes. before it went to sleep. It went to and, Princeton. And, and, right, it went to Princeton, it was caressed. They carried it here across the country from the Pacific Northwest. And you said, I'd rather get a piece of trout from a guy named Joe driving the truck who flings <laughs> it in through the door. <laughs> right. Yeah. 
that whole that, that that whole boutique thing with food. I, I mean, I, I, listen, I want Kobe beef. When I first first heard about that, I mean, everything about handling food. Uh, and what about on the low end? What's a place you? Well, low. I mean, you know, I hesitate to call them low, but I mean, yeah. a place like Eisenberg's. Um, do you know Eisenberg's yes. on Fifth Avenue? You know, I love their tuna sandwich. I mean, they do. They do. <laughs> I never thought you'd say that. I've been there. It's uh, okay. around the corner from my physical therapist. Oh, do you get the Reuben? I go there and have an egg salad sandwich. You can get a half egg salad, half tuna. I'm going to remember that. <laughs> and I'm going to recommend good tuna. that. Really good tuna. I won't share with you the details of my number one dish, which I call Bachelor Surprise, oh. which is my tuna salad sandwich. Oh, really? I make a tuna salad sandwich. People have wept when they've had my tuna salad I'm going to need to try it if you're not going to tell, tell you me what it mic. is. I'll tell okay. you off mic. It involves some very simple... I love tuna fish. It's tuna fish. European style. Well, I'll tell you. The, my favorite tuna um, is Rio Mare, and they don't export their Rio Mare and extra virgin olive oil to America. You can only get it in Italy, and you can ask any friend I have. We get or, cases of it. We get, we get my, the one from my wife. We get it from a Spanish grocery store. Real, oh, cool. Yeah, I, I used to eat fish every now and then. I get sick of fish. But before all those concerns about age and health and everything, you always remember my brother and I getting a quart of fried rice from the local Chinese place. Sure. Takeout. And sitting on the curb in the parking lot. They didn't have any seating. It was takeout only. It was a counter. Mm -hmm. And we would sit down and we'd eat. It was like the perfect mix of the shrimp and the egg and the scallions and this. And we'd sit there and eat. And it was like, we, we might as well have had a table at Lutece. Right. It was like the, it was the greatest meal I've ever had in my life. Right. Because you're so craving that and you're so jonesing for that. You know? And you don't feel that anymore. You don't have a craving for something that... What I crave that... now is the room. Food is not my enemy. Food is something I have to wrestle with. Uh-huh. But the common thread of food is just... Uh, I don't want to get too, too sappy here, but like who you're with, what's the vibe. Absolutely. You know? I mean, sharing food makes you part of a larger whole. And all the work that now people are doing with, you know, like Jose Andres and, and doing all the, the um, World Central Kitchen and going who to— Who was Jose Andres for our listeners who don't know? Um, chef, restaurateur. Where? Um, Washington, New York, L.A. And he's going to every disaster and feeding people. So he was in Puerto Rico, and he, he has fed so many people and got people cooking there and got people hot meals and really good meals. And the, the photographs, I remember, of like paella pants that were as big as this desk, which people can't see, but it's yeah. big. Yeah. And um, four and, feet across. Exactly, yeah. and it was just extraordinary. And so he's gone and organized for every disaster, and all kinds of people are doing that. There's such a humanitarian aspect now to food. There are a lot of refugee dinners. There, are, there are different groups that are either catering, um, so they take people who've been displaced, and people are now like cooking, and you can actually hire a caterer where people who were you know exiled for whatever reason and are here are cooking for you, which is fantastic because it, it brings them a sense of home and it brings you, um, you know, some really great meal that you didn't get to have before. Right. But it's the idea of just sharing food and sharing somebody's heritage and culture. And and I think, you know, those of us who are on, you know, on the good side of, of humanity are trying to, to connect with that and to share that. You know, I asked the driver, you guys were so nice to send me a car, and I asked the driver on the way what he looks for in a restaurant. And he said, oh, he said, I go to Queens and Brooklyn, and I eat uh, Jamaican food. And I said, because it's home? And he said, yes. The connection for people is, you know, what makes them feel at home, um, regardless of whether that home yeah. was last year or your, funny? childhood? Is that funny? 
Restaurant reviewers, how has that changed? Has it changed? Who do you trust now? Who do you— I do like—I like The New Yorker. I like Hannah Goldfield, mm-hmm. and, and, um, and I like— um, I don't want to disparage or— No, no, it's not about—just do what I do. Would you just name the ones you like? Well, but the thing is, I like some of what some people say. Do you, do you dislike Wells, what he writes? I don't dislike Wells, but I don't agree with everything that he says. But I think he, I do think he's a very good reviewer, and I, you know, I clearly go to the Times every Wednesday to see what, um, you know, what what he has said. But I trust people that I know more than I trust mm-hmm. reviewers that are out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, you look at something like TripAdvisor or Yelp, where, which so many people go to. And as as a friend of mine pointed out to me, she was going to Chiang Mai in Thailand for going to live there for a few months. And she said, well, I thought I'd look at TripAdvisor and I would see, like, what restaurants they were recommending. And she said the top-rated number one restaurant in Chiang Mai was a Tex-Mex place. And I thought, no, thanks. Don't need Crazy. to do that. Yeah. So people find, you know, I, I guess all the people who go to Yelp or, or TripAdvisor, if you find someone you like, I suppose, you know, that would mean something. I, I don't. I don't ever look at anything like that. I look at Yelp sometimes for addresses or do they take credit cards or, you know, sort of hardcore information. But I noticed a review said the best sushi in New York. So I thought, okay, I, I ha- you know, I have to see. I'll bite. And the person just said, this is the best sushi I've ever had. Of course, I've never had sushi before. And I thought, like, Aha. And to me, that sums up like that kind of local reviews. And, you know, if it works for you, great. But what I do is I try and glean what somebody wants and I keep a personal file on them. Or even if it's just a one-time thing, I, I get, you know, by eliciting answers from them on, on my questions, I get what it is that they're looking for. Mm-hmm. We're inching toward my last question, which is um, my dear friend Ronnie Dobson, who I think you met, mm-hmm. who spent a good part of his youth – uh, you know, studied literature at Brooklyn College and uh, uh, is a very beautiful writer and one of the great uh, minds I've ever known in my life. I mean, just this amazing guy. And took a couple years in different times of his life to travel extensively, one in Africa, one in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And when he's in Africa, he's – and he really does talk. His version – I mean, I, I'm really not exaggerating. His version of like Woody Allen. He's, a, he's this Jewish kid from Brooklyn and he's – Totally Woody Allen. So when you talk to him, he's like, uh, you know, he'd, he'd be like on a uh, hiking across Africa with a friend, mm-hmm. and they would come upon a boma, and people would be cooking something, and uh, and he really, really ate everything. I mean, he ate anything. If if human beings are standing over a simmering pot, and mad. it's kudu or impala, it didn't matter. Whatever they're cooking, and there's some potatoes and carrots floating in there, he was down. He'd have a big steaming bowl of whatever. He, he ate everything. To me, uh, that's like, you know, I'd be like, have you, have you guys got any, you know, rice cakes and peanut butter? That I could have a little <laughs> snack? Butter. Any almond butter? But there's those things I can't eat. There's just things I can't eat. Are there things that you can't eat? There are definitely things like, I, I, and, you know, I don't want things like brains and stuff. There's this really fantastic place Um um, called um, Ali's Kebab Cafe that's been there for a long time on Steinway Street in Astoria. And Ali's this great man. There's no kitchen, really. There's like a hot plate. And um, and he creates these incredible meals. You, he just comes over to you and he's like, what do you feel like today? And you kind of tell him. But there are things like the brain and stuff. Like if it comes to the table, I need to put up a little wall so that I can't yeah. even look at it because the brain looks like brain. Uh, before Frank Booney, before Pete Wells and everything, the New York Times would write a restaurant review. And maybe a handful of times a year they would go to an outer borough. Yeah. Maybe no. a ham, if at all. Brooklyn was where you went to buy a gun. <laughs> no, it's true. Now they all have personal bodyguards out there. They don't need a gun. <laughs> That's right. Is in, that, in that way that I'm describing Ronnie, were you a fan of Bourdain? 
Oh God, yes, you were. Yes, him and and you know and Jonathan Golden from L.A. and, and um and people who who bring who. It's about people and culture and, you know, and that that sort of energy. And I just appreciate that so much about what he did for the world and going off to these places and just saying, like, here, there's this— Opening a window. There's this culture that you can devour. The cultural thing was was riveting. It was riveting. And he also makes it exciting because when you travel and you, you know, my favorite thing is if you tell me something's hard to find or hard to get, um, rare, I want it. And, you know, I, I will drag somebody through a jungle in Indonesia to, because there's a fish place on the beach called Nyomans, and everyone loves the fish there. It was effortful. But then you get to this little stand um, with, you know, like two tables, and um, and it's Nyomans fish because Nyoman is one of the popular names there. And um, and the fish was incredible. It's It was just extraordinary, you know, and he's just grilling it on an open fire, and it's as simple as it can be, but it's fresh, and it's perfectly cooked. And, you know, that's what I like about, about Bourdain, too, is that you just sort of feel like you hunted for something that now I want to find. Right. You've led me somewhere. You've led me somewhere, exactly. If you had a single serving of one thing, what would the last meal be? Among many, what would it be? Bread. Bread. Bread, that really crusty on the outside, soft on the inside, where you can't, you know, you buy it in the store and it's almost gone by the time you get home. You kind of have to get two, so you have the one that you (laughs) need for later. (laughs) Exactly. The travel pack. But you need the travel pack because you just keep breaking off another piece. And if you can have butter on it, you know, fantastic or whatever whatever you choose. It's your fantasy. You have butter, yeah. But, um, yeah, well, then end up dying anyway, so (laughs) who cares? More butter. (laughs) Pile on that butter. Mine would be corn on the cob. Would it? I crave. When I'm I love Long on Island. We get to that August, that September, Labor Day, the New Jersey Silver Queen, all those legendary late summer corn love with lots them. of sugar, corn on the cob. But I don't put butter on corn. You I, don't? No, because the corn is so – when you get a great piece of corn, then you're just tasting I butter. I put butter on – when I have corn on the cob, I have about six pieces of it. Oh, yeah, I understand. So I have that. every other one has butter on it. Got it. I'll do no butter. <laughs> it's a palate cleanser. And then I do the butter. <laughs> I do the healthy sorbet. corn on the cob. <laughs> and then I have the little uh, sorbet, the one with no butter, and then I have the butter. <laughs> yeah. No, that's perfect. That, that's exactly right. Thank you so much for doing this with me. Well, thanks. It's fun to, to talk food with a friend. Um, I, I, I tend to – I never tested well, so I'm not good on, on, on questions on the spot. I always have to think like, what? What are you asking me? Why are you asking me? Well, what I love about what you do, uh, I'm never going to say that Wells and people who write for The Times are compromised in any way, but there's a lot riding on what they do. Mm-hmm. I went with Frank Bruni. Uh, uh, um, Maureen Dowd said, you want to come with me and Frank and another person to go to Del- Batali's Del Posto uh, when it had just opened up. And we went with Bruni, and it was so eye-opening to me. And, and, and Frank kind of took me through, like, the protocols of when he goes in. Mm-hmm. And we were sitting there. It was really, really, really fascinating. But that's, you know, he was the restaurant critic for the Times. There's a whole mm-hmm. other thing going on. Yours is much more. I'm a conduit. You know, I, I'm sort of like the the conduit to you and Emil that I think you might really enjoy. I'm not saying that, you know, that this is right for everybody. I'm not sort of declaring that this restaurant's going to last or this restaurant's not going to last. I just really like to think about – I love reading menus. I love thinking about food. And there are so many good things to have. I mean, it's just something that I want to share more than it's about a criticism or a – an evaluation of a whole place. And I, I just want to share it. I feel like I had this great dumpling. You have to have it too. I had this pancake. You have to have it too. And it's sublime. 
that was my old friend Deborah Kletter of EatQuest NYC. She can source you a sturgeon and find you a food tour, but it's really all about that ineffable match between human and table. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. From earaches to strep tests, there's Minute Clinic at CVS. See a provider, fill a prescription, and grab essentials. Or see us online with telehealth options. That's healthier made easier. Visit Minute Clinic at CVS today. Services vary by location. See MinuteClinic.com for details. September 10th, 2001. One block from the World Trade Center. Security cameras capture the last known images of Dr. Sneha and Philip shopping. At 7.18 p.m., she swipes a credit card, grabs her bags, and exits onto the street, into the rain. She never comes home. The next day... We just had a, a plane crash into level four of the World Trade Center. Chaos. Thousands disappear. But Sneha is different. There is not a trace of her. Nothing. Listen to Missing on 9-11 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.